Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and whose spirit there is no deceit. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright of heart. Those are verses 1 and 2 and 10 and 11 of Psalm 32, which along with Psalm 30 are the psalms appointed for today, Saturday, April the 24th, 2021. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. We're still continuing in the book of Daniel today, and we're changing epistles again because we finished Second uh, John yesterday, and so now we're going to look at the epistle of Third John, and then also in the Gospel of Luke. So remember yesterday where we were in, in the um, reading from Daniel was the king had been induced, tricked, whatever words you want to use, flattered into uh, issuing an edict and an, and an injunction which can't be controverted even by the king once it's established. And that injunction was is that no one in the kingdom was supposed to worship anything other than the king, Darius, for 30 days. And he was tricked into doing that by the leaders who were jealous of Daniel, who was about to be placed over all those leaders. And so they knew that they couldn't find fault in him in the way that he executed his offices or the way that he was faithful to the king. So what they found was they contrived a way to make it illegal for him to practice his religion by doing this and getting the king to issue this injunction. And so Daniel continued his practice of praying towards Jerusalem three times a day and they saw him doing it turned him in and he was thrown into the lion's den against the wishes of the king who wished that he had not signed that injunction to start with so Daniel's brought and cast into the den of lions and the king declares to him may your God whom you serve continually deliver you so highly he thought of Daniel he didn't want to execute this he'd been boxed into a corner and couldn't get out and so a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den. Does that remind you of anything? This, this whole scene should remind you of the crucifixion where you've got this pagan king, leader, whatever, who didn't want to execute this judgment, but he got boxed into a corner and did it. It's the same thing that Herod tried to get out of or Pilate tried to get out of in, in freeing Jesus. He wanted to set Jesus free. His intention was, okay, it's that time of year. You've got a chance to set somebody free. Surely it'll be him. And no, they demanded that it be Barabbas and Jesus be crucified. So against the actual wishes of Pilate, who washes his hands, says, I'm innocent of this man's blood. Here, Darius is in that same basic place. And then a stone is brought and laid on the mouth of the den. And the king sealed it with his own signet and the signet of the Lord's that nothing might be changed according to Daniel. And it's exactly the same sort of situation. You've got a cave with a stone rolled across it and a man in there who will surely be dead the next day when they come. And so at the break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. Sounds like Mary and the other women going to the tomb of Jesus. He came near to the den where Daniel was. He cried out in a tone of anguish and he declared, O Daniel, Servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? And then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. Which is exactly what the Lord said when they came to him. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouth, and they've not harmed me, because I was found blameless before him, and also before you, O king, I have done no harm. The king was exceedingly glad and commanded Daniel be taken up out of the den. So he's 
taken out of the den and no harm was found to have come upon them. And then he commanded that those men who had viciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the lion's dens. Not just them, though. They, their children, and their wives. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. Sounds a lot like Haman also from the story of Esther who tried to do exactly this same thing. Sounds also, this story is very similar to the Joseph story in many ways. We're called to be faithful. We're called to be faithful to God above all else, but we're called also to be faithful in the work that we do, whatever that work may be, and whoever we may be working for at any given time. So what happens here is at the end of this, Darius wrote to all the peoples and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you, I make a decree that in all my royal dominion people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth, he who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. And so this, this king comes to know the truth about Daniel's God. And so... This Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Cyrus the Persian is the um, uncle or nephew, I guess, of Darius, who he has set over this part of the kingdom, over the Medes and the Persians. And so the way that he was trapped was he, he might not have actually known that he was trapped whenever he signed the edict and the injunction in this. But these are the ones who watched over the Israelites because they believed what they had seen of Israel's God. And they're the ones who ultimately allow them to come back to the promised land and rebuild Jerusalem. So faithfulness is the main thing that we're constantly commanded to be. Faithful in all our relationships. Faithful in our relationships with our friends, our family, our God, our church. Um, and, and with all those who are in authority over us. We're called to be faithful to those people. So in, in the... Luke passage, the gospel passage, if you remember yesterday, Jesus healed two different people. He healed a leper and he healed a paralytic. And in both cases, sin was involved because, and we know that because in the first instance with the leper, Jesus told the man to go and make the offering necessary to certify the cure. And that, that offering is a sin offering. And so he sent him to do that. And with the man who was paralyzed, Jesus healed him by first proclaiming to him that his sins were forgiven. And then told him to rise up and walk. And so here we, we see Jesus just continuing to, to push the edges of things. And, and, and if you're a disciple of Jesus, these are newly called guys, right? And they see Jesus touching lepers and they see him doing all these other things and they're all wonderful, but there's always a little twist to him because he touched the leper. Well, wait a minute, didn't he just become sort of, you know, a leper for a season of time anyway, at least ritually by touching that man? And and, but, well, no, because it doesn't make sense because the man became clean after he touched him. And so how you work that out. And then the next thing that happens is as they're going along, he sees a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he says to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. He did exactly what the fishermen had done when they were called. He rose and left everything and followed Jesus. But the problem is you've now brought a tax collector into the circle. Wait a minute, the rest of us were actually kind of, you know, at least at some level, we were righteous men and all that kind of stuff. We weren't a part of a despised community of people like the tax collectors who were conspiring with the Roman Empire. No, 
the, the disciples had to wonder what in the world they had gotten into when Jesus calls Matthew slash Levi to be a part of this apostolic or, or discipleship band. And so then the first thing that happens is Levi does what everybody else does, right? Because remember before we were at Simon Peter's uh, mother-in-law's house, and so the, everybody's taking him into their homes, and so here Levi does the same thing. He makes a great feast in his house. Then what does he do? Well, he invites the people that he knows best. And because he's a tax collector and he's despised by the Jewish community, his friends are other tax collectors. And so they've got this large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them, and the Pharisees can be there because that's the way it worked. When you provided hospitality to a visiting dignitary, then other people could come and sort of hang around in the background. They may not be eating at the table with you, but they could be hanging around in the background, and it was part of your display of hospitality to the world to say there's, there's somebody here with something to say, therefore I'm going to leave the doors and windows open so that you can be here. So the Pharisees are grumbling to Jesus' disciples and saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Well, you can bet that the disciples were already thinking that very same thing. What are we doing and what have we gotten into here? We're hanging out with not better people, but worse people. Why are we sitting here with these people? And Jesus answers, though, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. They don't even recognize themselves in that. They have no sense of being sinners. They believe themselves to be righteous. And so I think that's the problem with Pharisees is they don't see their own sin. They only see other people's sin. And they're good at that. They're good fault finders. They're just not good fault finders in themselves. You've probably known people like that. I've certainly known a lot of people like that. And so they said to them, well, wait a minute. How about this? The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours don't. They eat and drink. And Jesus says, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom's taken away from them, and then they'll fast in those days. That, that's a big claim. <laughs> Jesus is making a big, big statement right there. And they're going to find that incredibly offensive, that, that he considers himself to be the bridegroom. And it's a big enough claim that he says they don't have to fast when I'm here. Something way more important is going on when the bridegroom is here, and the bridegroom is me. And they can fast later when the bridegroom is no longer here with them, when he's taken away from them. But now, no, it's a time for feasting, not fasting. They're comparing... Apples and oranges, the disciples of John and the disciples of the Pharisees. They're comparing them with Jesus' disciples. Those are two totally different things, and they're not seeing that. And when he calls himself the bridegroom, he's drawing a distinction between himself and them. And he's saying, you should be part of this. You should understand that, that your thing is wrong, and it's going away. And then, then he tells two parables and about tearing a piece of cloth from a new garment and puts it on an old garment, And because if he does, it'll tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. It's going to shrink, and it's going to tear the, the original garment, which is already shrunk. And then he says the same thing about new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst at the skins, and it'll be spilled, and the wine will be destroyed. The skins will be destroyed, but every... New wine must be put into fresh wineskins, and no one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says the old is good. And so Jesus is, is making claims here and saying there's something new in your midst. 
something brand new in your midst, but it's not a new thing, it's an old thing. It's the thing promised from of old. And you're the ones actually doing the new thing. You're doing it the wrong way around. <clears throat> that they've added to the gospel or to, to the word of God in so many ways. And, and so Jesus is rebuking them in the presence of these tax collectors and sinners. And, and so they would have felt some sort of a, a, a sting and assault by the words of the Pharisees that, that he, then, he then corrects the Pharisees not the tax collectors. Jesus is coming to preach the good news, and this is the thing that I think we need to be better at, is understanding that we're here to preach the good news. We're here to reach sinners, and the, Jesus didn't go and condemn these people sitting there. No, he, he blessed them with his presence. And so they were brought into the presence of God, and they were blessed by him being there and not condemning them. We have to be better at following the Spirit and living in love. In that way, it doesn't mean that we that we ignore sin in any shape, form, or fashion. It just doesn't mean that, that that needs to be our major when we're trying to preach the gospel to somebody. We have to bring them to Jesus first, and then bring them to the Healer and allow Him and the Holy Spirit to convict of sin, just as He does with us. So John, in in this epistle, is writing to a, another community, to the elder, uh, to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in the truth, and then he's preaching the same thing to them as he is with in all the other epistles that he wrote, and that has to do with truth, and it has to do with the fact that others are coming, they're saying other Gospels, they're telling different Gospels that are no Gospels at all. He said, I rejoice greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you're walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. It's important for us to walk in the truth. It's important for, for us to abide in the truth and, and to know that truth. And that's the most important thing. And I don't know how to get that across to people is that you can't constantly be asking me, doesn't it say in the Bible, blah, blah, blah. No, you need to know what it says in the Bible. I have a friend that does that to me all the time. Doesn't it say in the Bible? Isn't it somewhere in the Bible? You know, you're not abiding in the Word of God. And if you're not abiding in the Word of God, then you can be deceived. And you can be deceived in a big hurry. And the, the main point of his questions is always to apply it to the political situation in America. And, and you you got the wrong end of the stick, and you're trying to apply Scripture to something that it doesn't apply to. And it's frustrating when we use Scripture for only our own purposes, and we only pull out the things that we think support our cause in some shape, form, or fashion. No, we're called to walk in the truth. We're called to walk in the whole truth, and the judgment is real. And judgment begins at the household of God. It doesn't, it doesn't begin with those people out there that you don't like, that you differ from politically and otherwise. No, and the way to reach them is to not tell them how sinful they are all the time. Well, I'm not seeing your righteousness on the other side of that. I'm seeing a desire for judgment against other people, and that's not the way that we're supposed to approach the world. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son to the end that all that believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And that's the gospel. Is that the way we preach the gospel? Is that the way we approach other people, people who are not in the community, people who, who we might disagree with in some shape, form, or fashion? Are we approaching them in love? Because we're not fighting against people. We're not fighting against flesh and blood, Paul says, but against principalities and powers. And the sooner we remember that, the better off we are. And we need to feel compassion for those who have been deceived. And, but John says it's important for those who know the truth to abide in the truth. And to stay away from deception. But you've got to know the truth in order to stay away from deception. 
And John is frustrated, obviously, with this group of people that that Gaius is close to here. Um, he said, just treat the brothers well. Those who come, those who want to preach the Word of God, receive them as brothers and then send them out as brothers. Send them out well, as opposed to this guy, Demet- not Demetrius, sorry, um, Diotrephes, who, who John points at here and says you know, he's basically a horrible guy. He looks to put himself first. He doesn't even acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I'll bring up what he's doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. It's, we can be so judgmental. <laughs> you know, I've not seen that in a long, long time. But, but I certainly have had some experience of seeing um, even pastors judge their own flock. You know, I know of a guy who um, won't give his congregation communion. He has withheld communion from the, from the congregation for literally years because he doesn't think they're worthy. I knew another guy who used to use communion as a test for his leadership because he was worried that witches were going to invade the leadership. And so he believed that witches couldn't say this is the body of Christ or the blood of Christ the cup of salvation. As so we used it as a test, I'm not sure that there's anything remotely godly about testing your leadership, especially when you don't even tell them. But his assumption was is that, that there were people trying to get in and that somehow or another the communion was used as, as some sort of bizarre ritual, not for the purpose of sharing communion, but for the purpose of ferreting out witches in the midst. We've got to be better than that we've got to do better than that we've got to be people who love people who take people at face value at some level we've when they claim to be christians unless we've seen something that proves to us that they're not then we need to receive them as brothers and sisters not that way it's not good and it's not healthy